0: Welcome to another episode of the data revolution podcast today my guest is Catherine flick who I have known and who I have followed around the various social media platforms, since uh, Twitter started to decline, uh, even on the uh, recently demised pebble app
1: hello Catherine. Hi Kate, it's nice to be here. I feel like I've been following you around for quite a quite a bit longer than that. Um, but it's nice to know that you're <laughs> sort of reciprocating that now because I think we've got a lot of shared interests, which is great. Yeah, well, I was
0: looking at your research interests, and there's a whole pile of stuff that I'm I'm really interested in. Um, and I see that you've got a crossover between sort of you're a steam person, so you're a an arts and a computer science kind of person.
1: Yeah, so I'm at the moment I'm a reader in computing and social responsibility, so I'm actually a technology ethicist. Um, so I kind of feel like I bridge the gap between kind of philosophy and technology, but particularly in terms of the ethical and social impact. And I'm actually about to finish that job up, like literally in a week and a half or so. Um, and I'm moving to Staffordshire University, uh, where I'm going to become a professor in ethics and games technology. And I think that's probably the first of that sort of type of professorship in the world, which is quite exciting to me as well. So, yeah. Um, I guess what I really do is I kind of like, I try to kind of translate, I I see myself as a bit of a bridge. So I I sort of try to translate technology to people that might be affected by it in, you know, usually in potentially negative ways. But then I also try to kind of translate back again and help industry understand what the impact of their technologies might be. And I've worked with everything from small um, companies through to really large companies uh, in European-based projects. And I've done all sorts of random bits and pieces. So I've worked on online child protection. I do stuff obviously in video games. I wrote a whole paper about how terrible NFTs are. So I did a lot of stuff in um, the crypto kind of world when that was all kind of kicking off um and I mean yeah lots of weird little bits and pieces along the side I think one of my my favorite papers that I've ever written was one about the ethics and archaeology of chickens in video games so there you go
0: (laughs) (laughs) well I'm really interested in what you're working on now because you were telling telling me about your work with the digital observatory which was quite interesting tell us a bit about that
1: yeah so I mean um one of the Professorship in video games is. I'm kind of like trying to. I mean, I'm general. I'm a generalist uh, technology ethicist, but um, in the most, in the mo- like the most recent years, I've been really interested in vi- how video games kind of interact with society and the societal impact, and how you know we create. I mean, because obviously, video games is like an artistic endeavor, but it also has quite a significant social. Impact. I mean, we see all the kind of moral panics around violence and, you know, addiction and all of this. And it, I think there's a lot of space still to be kind of sorted out in terms of, you know, what's actually really the impact that is happening and what's just kind of what, what we think the impact might be. Right. And a lot of the issue that we have with that is that industry is not particularly keen on sharing data with uh, academics in particular I mean they're all quite happy to kind of hype up their own kind of you know wellness well-being usually a lot lot of things are centered around but well-being so I mean you saw all the kind of the Pokemon Go from a couple of years ago how that was kind of talked about in terms of well-being and you know getting people out and walking and things like that I mean so we have like quite positive potential social impacts as well. And it's just, I I sort of, you know, really want to the next, I don't know however many years it takes me, I want to kind of sort out the fact from fiction a little bit and kind of work out what where these actual real impacts kind of lie and how we can kind of harness those positive impacts from, uh, you know, and, and mitigate or prevent the negative ones. And one of the ways I'm doing this is working with some friends of mine that I met through. Gosh, yeah, actually the internet, good old internet once again. Twitter, I think it was are from the internet I, I know the best collaborations, were back pre-Musk Twitter. And I I I do I lament, I lament the demise of Twitter because I mean, you know, we've all moved to these different places, but it's not quite the same. And you you sort of find, yeah, anyway, it's all fragmented now. It's not quite quite as good as it used to be. But anyway, um, I met some friends and basically after a few years of collaborating with them informally, um, we've decided to kind of work, we worked really well together. Um, and as you probably know in academia, when you find people <laughs> that you work really well together with, you tend to stick around with them. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we, uh, we've formed this digital observatory research cluster, um, where we look at data-driven, um, like we want to look at the, the what the data is actually telling us in terms of the actual social impact of games. So we've actually got collaboration with Unity, um, which is the big video game uh, company that that creates all the engines that people make video games with. We have access to several years of their uh, data uh, in terms of their playtime and monetization. And part of what I've been doing is making sure that we work with that in an ethical manner. Um, And because obviously, you know, we've got billions and billions and billions of hours of playtime that we can access. We want to make sure we can't like identify people or or whatever, but we also want to make sure that we can find some interesting things out, um, you know, in the process, but do so in a, uh, in a socially beneficial way, but also an ethical way. So one of the, you know, we've been um, really keen on looking at like actually, how does like monetization look? What does it actually look like? Because I mean a lot of this stuff hasn't even like industry is so stingy, I want to say, but in like a positive way, like they're not super forthcoming with data. And so the fact that we've got this massive data lake just to kind of paddle around in is the most incredible thing for us. And we're really excited about all the such, things a that we're huge, doing such a huge,
0: such a huge pool of data. And they mm-hmm. must track just about everything.
1: Yeah, they really do. Yeah. So, I mean, the sorts of data we have access to is things so we we can track what we what we can see um, when we look at like obviously they have a lot more data. They've they we've, we've yeah they don't give it all to you. No, they don't give it all to us. That would be quite unethical in many ways, and also not, probably not great for their, uh, their you know IP and things like that. But um, what they do give us access to is is. The play time that somebody had, like an individual, has within one game. So let's say you really like playing Baldur's Gate or something. That's not made with Unity, but you know you get the idea. Um, if you really like playing Baldur's Gate, we can track you as an as an anonymous individual. Um, uh, how long you play for? Uh, what you know when you know basically when you play and how long you play for, right? Um, and just within that game, so we can't track you in between games. So we can't, if you go off and play, I don't know something else, we can't, we can't track that you're, you're switching between games or anything. But what we can do it is track all individual people across multiple no. games. No, all right, no. So it's, that, that's one of the stipulations we had because we didn't want to build profiles of people. We just wanted, we wanted to build profiles of kind of games, um, because you know that it seemed a bit more sensible to do it that way, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, we also have access to monetization data as well. So if your game has got, if this, if a, a Unity game uses Unity analytics and it has a mon- the Unity like mon- like in-app purchases, so we don't track ads, unfortunately, there's not, we don't have access to that because it's a third party thing from what I can tell, but we have access to all the monetization from in-app purchases that are made through Unity kit, right? So um, we can you know, find out what, what you've bought, how you buy it, like, you know, when you've bought it, like if it's late at night or if it's early in the morning or, you know, how frequently you buy it, all that sort of stuff. And then we can kind of map out what the monetization of a game looks like. So we can see how much a particular game has made. Um, we can see what the the actual, like, structure of that monetization looks like. So if it peaks very early on and then kind of dribbles off or if it kind of, you know, steadily you know increases over time or you know we can we can follow things like when new um things are added to a shop for example stuff like that um and yeah i mean there's lots of stuff we can we can actually kind of follow um which no, is what, really what cool. Have been the most <laughs> interesting insights so far so we've got four main papers that we've uh, published out so far so it's within the last well year and a half or so um About two years, actually, we've been we've been working together on this, and we've got so the the they're all really interesting. That's the thing. (laughs) I mean, uh, so one of the main the one one of the big ones we've done is we've kind of mapped out what uh, mobile game monetization looks like and what sorts of basically, if you want to make a mobile game, what might the pattern of monetization look like in terms of Mm -hmm. just in terms of different genres? So, um, if you make kind of like a collectible card game, like I don't know let's say Pokemon, like Pokemon card card games. I'm not a card game person. Yeah. <laughs> <but> like, <laughs> if you make something like that um, for a mobile, for, for, for a mobile, uh, what might it look like, right? And so we've got sort of spending pattern um, analyses of different genres of games. So uh, unsurprisingly, um, actually... Actually, maybe not unsurprisingly, because I didn't even really know that this kind of category existed, because I guess it doesn't really appeal to me. But it turns out that the most, if you want to make a game that makes loads of money, make a social casino game. Um, what and is a social-,
0: social casino? Hold on a sec.
1: So social casino games. So basically it's gambling, but you don't actually get any money. So you pay money to play, but you just but you get don't like. You win any money. Well, you win in-game coins so you can keep playing but that's it. You don't get a payout or anything.
0: I I just don't understand. I'm a, I'm a very different kind of person to those people
1: (laughs) because I don't understand
0: gambling. I went to the RSL club with my husband one time and we put 20 bucks in and we made a hundred bucks. And I was like, yeah, let's go home now. And he was like, what? We just got here. And I was like, but we made money. (laughs) We should leave. Yeah. No, well, I
1: guess, I guess this game is made for you then because it really is about like I mean they call them so I mean I don't know how much social there is to social casinos but I mean the idea is that you just get the you get the I guess the the kick of winning without you see you don't even like you don't even it's not even got to do with like losing or winning money back or anything like mm-hmm. that right like um <laughs> it's really about <laughs> It's really about kind of like just playing for fun, I guess. And that's how they kind of frame it, right? So they're not allowed to give, like if they get give payouts and Apple or Google tend to kick them off the app store. So um, that's one of the, the rules. And a lot of them will say, like they have all these like disclaimers saying this is not, you know, you don't win any real money and all this, but, but
0: I guess it it's it the, the same.
1: Okay. So it's just yeah, a concept to me. Yeah. It hits all the same dopamine kind of receptor things, I guess. And like, I mean, because they're so good at kind of, Tapping into very psychological triggers, right? In terms of you know, even if you feel like you're winning, if you feel like you're winning, if you feel like it doesn't really matter in some ways, if it's real money or money to- that keeps you able to play, right? Because I mean, a lot of people go to the casino. They start out, you know, as you say, with a hundred bucks or whatever, or- and then and then, but then they they play until they run out of that money right like (laughs) and so for them it's not so much about the winning the money it's more about the playing continuing to play so I guess that's kind of what they're tapping into so that's I mean that's one of the ones um if you want to make a classic kind of game where you have little pretty skins and things like that you know you might end up with a more stable uh like like there's different kind of patterns but like we sort of we're trying to see if there was like a nice kind of sustainable um method of of making money ethically within games and it's we haven't quite got to that point yet like we've only just done the first stage where we've mapped out what they actually look like so the next stage is now to look at how do you actually like what what might you if you want to make a nice sustainable mobile game that makes you some money what does that look like in terms of what we understand about monetization so that's the next next step really but
0: then we also are you also looking at the correlation between things like the the reward sounds and the reward visuals, right. So this is also
1: another another like we. I mean, the thing is, this this data set opens up so much that we like. There's only four of us. Well, and if, and we got so, so it's four key 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 uh, people, and then we've got some postdocs and stuff working with us, and some PhD students working with you us. You need but... more postdocs. Yeah, we definitely need more postdocs. I need we I need to get my grant grants uh, engine back up and running. I've been on maternity leave for a year, and I I had a I had a we we had a a grant that went in, but um we, the research council we submitted it to said, oh, we like it, but it's not in our remit. We don't feel like it's in our remit. We should you should send it to this other one, and we just didn't quite get there yet. But now, yeah, on, we will. Hold on
0: a sec. Let Let's just take that diversion. So you've just been appointed professor, and you've just been on maternity leave. That's pretty interesting. That doesn't happen very often.
1: <laughs> no, it doesn't. I've actually had two babies in the last five years. So uh, I've been on, you know, two lots of maternity leave in the last five years. But I think it's, yes, yeah, so, you know, um, yeah, definitely a lot of uh, props to uh, Staffordshire University <laughs> for picking me up. Um, despite that, I think it's actually because I had a lot of stuff that was on the go. Um, and then as I was on maternity leave, like, you know, the publication system like takes a yeah, while it's... to kind of keep. Yeah. And so had something uh, in
0: the pipeline.
1: Yeah, basically I had a bunch of the pipeline to keep to kind of keep the reputation going. <laughs> but I mean, there were good publications. I mean, we had a Nature Human Behavior paper and things like that. So it was pretty, pretty good beha- papers and things. So I think that helped. But, I, you know, I like, like
0: to. It. Well done to you and well done. Yeah, the, thanks. The you know, for appointing you
1: yeah no, I think it's really I mean it's a good sign in a university if they're willing to kind of take someone that has been on maternity leave for for you know quite a while and they're see especially at the senior senior stage, but I mean, I think it would be a very different case if I were more junior because you don't I didn't I wouldn't have had all that stuff happening, you know boiling around on in the background, if you know what I mean so um yeah, I mean it's it's having children later in life is a choice that I made, and I'm you know I'm glad that I did it, obviously, but it's not a choice that everyone can can always make either so um yeah it's it's an interesting an interesting space being a sort of a senior senior academic um you know senior woman academic because there is a lot of i mean i think also like i mean different sorts of universities like are a bit more kind of old-fashioned and they might not have like looked at that as a as a having as being of benefit like having you know working kind of parent um but anyway i, I i'm very pleased to be uh, moving to staffordshire um, and I'm very excited about about what my role is going to, you know, what I'm going to keep, you know, plugging away at all this sort of stuff and nurturing new researchers and things like that. So I'm very excited about it.
0: Yeah, well, it sounds fabulous. All right, so sorry for that division, but it's just something <laughs> that
1: okay. was worth asking the question <laughs> about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the other really interesting one that I thought was cool was, uh, so the other paper that we did was, I mean, there's a bunch of different papers, but the other one that I really liked was the fact that we looked at um, what impact COVID had on gameplay. So we looked oh, yeah. back at data before um, COVID. So we looked at a year's worth of data before COVID and then we looked at the the, the data during COVID. And we, we mapped it against all of the, like, and we have global data, right? So we mapped it against all of the, different countries um, that published what their lockdown, you know, like their d- different phases and stages and types of lockdown type responses to COVID um, were. And we um, we mapped those against those and, and saw, we, we looked to see which types of me- mechanisms for, you know, controlling COVID had the most impact, right? Um, so have a guess. What do you think? So, I mean, let me, th- we sort of had like, so there was kind of like, Altogether lockdown, like everybody, don't go outside Melbourne, house like Melbourne. <laughs> well, like all of the UK for a very long time and even more so in Leicester where I am. <laughs> um, so it was a total lockdown. There was uh, schools being shut. There was uh, workplaces being shut just generally, um, but otherwise you could move around. There was like no contact with other people type, you know, no, don't have any parties or whatever. Um, no Christmas parties, like in one case for us, <laughs> um, stuff like that. Uh, yeah. So, what do you what What do you think was the most impactful? Oh, I don't know. Um,
0: I would just go to the the lock everybody up and don't let anybody out. Ah,
1: so surprisingly, no. It was no. actually the schools being locked down had the most impact. Oh, because kids are
0: they are mm-hmm. they are just little petri dishes. Well.
1: Like while you're working, you want them to be distracted doing stuff. I mean, this is just speculation, right? But I think it's reasonable speculation. So you whack them in front of a video game, off you go, right? Or TV or whatever. But it was it, we we suspect that was probably got what it had something to do with.
0: Oh, well that's really interesting. Yeah, because because um I think there's there's been a really interesting set of people with strongly held feel opinions about what's happening. Uh, what happened with COVID and, you know, we need more data. We need more studies like that. uh, Yeah, and
1: and I think it's the the important thing about this particular particular paper was that it was really a, um, we only saw a short-term impact as well. So it's not like everyone went, you know, stopped working or stopped going to school and then started playing games and kept playing games. Like even when things opened back up again, it was very much a short kind of short term thing. I think there was a lot of concern about um, screen times for, especially for children um, and stuff like as a result of COVID. And so this, I mean, certainly from the data that we saw, there's no, there's no real, um, you know, like we, we didn't, we didn't find any impact that that it had a longer term effect basically. So I think that's actually quite, been, like po- that's a positive finding um and um yeah it was like most of the lockdown procedures policies just didn't have any impact at all like people just played games the way they normally did and that's probably because people were mostly still working but working from home we, we think but obviously we don't have evidence for why these things are and this is why doing these kind of low-level studies that just show what what was going on in the data is a, is a really good like basis for then going in and de- delving deep into some of these these results, and that's kind of what I want to start doing um, when I take up my new role. Do
0: you have any year, so. idea what what um what the profiles looked like before, during, and after with, with each country on the country by country? Yeah,
1: places? yeah. So that's that's another one, a fun one that we did. So we looked at actually how do how does how do countries around the world play? Like how do how do they actually. You know what how can we cluster like are there any clusters of how people play like like we wanted to see if there was a culture of play right um in terms of, of 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 countries and normally traditionally we sort of when you talk about video games we talk about like how we there's kind of like a we talk about like the north american and kind of european and like probably australian as well so basically kind of the anglosphere i want to i want to call it but also plus europe um, we sort of assume that they all play the same right and then um we assume as well that sort of east asia uh generally plays the same because we we talk a lot about like japanese video game play culture and there's also a big chinese market and they, we assume that they have um that they have a, a um like a um similar sort of a a particular culture that plays differently from these other places and and we actually what we found was surprisingly um that wasn't the case in fact (laughs) we had a whole bunch of um uh like the countries so uh, for example um usa canada japan and russia all play much the same way but they play differently from europe and china who play the same way as each other so that was quite an interesting finding fascinating Um, (laughs) yeah yeah so they tend to have like um like mobile so we were looking particularly at mobile gaming um, and we so we weren't looking at pc or or console games but we're looking very much at mobile gaming Mm -hmm. um but we yeah it was it's some of these things we can kind of speculate as to why, but there are a lot that we just we have no idea why why they why they play in certain ways, right? So for example, with the um we call it the E-type cluster, which is the um one with Australia, Russia, and North America, um they have kind of uh it's very, very common to play games. Um and there's a well-established layer of heavily engaged players is what we what we call what we call it. Um and then um but then in Europe we have the It's there are very, very unequal gaming cultures. So there's a strong layer of extremely engaged players, but the like we looked at things like the monetization practices and stuff as well. And so, like, it was so it was very much about kind of um, like playtime. Sorry, no, we didn't look at monetization for that one. We looked at like the playtime per capita, and there were some people that played a lot and then not uh, like some people that didn't play very much at all. So that's what we call an unequal gaming culture. Whereas in Australia and and, um, the US, et cetera uh, it was mostly fairly equal. Like the mostly people played much the same. Um, so it was kind of interesting. So we can kind of like, yeah, it was, uh, it, it, then there's these very, 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 very highly engaged players, um, who, and it's mostly in places like Hong Kong and Singapore, uh, and like Macau and some of these, these East Asian countries that have, but they're very, very tiny. Um, and, um, uh, we 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 that the the wealthy East Asian territories with the highest um, play time per capita um, with extreme gameplay. The top one percent of players accounting for almost fifty eight percent of total play time. So it was a really really heavily and like heavily uh, weighted sector of the of the gaming of, of mobile gaming there. So it was it was very, very very interesting.
0: Yeah yeah. So are you thinking of supplementing your um, research with things like focus groups or anything? To yes, through. I mean,
1: like, like I said, this—I mean, it, we're basically doing kind of the very fun what we could, would consider to be kind of the fundamental research, like what do the pictures actually look like, yeah. right? And then um, I can see certainly for the next sort of ten years or so, really getting into some of these. Okay, so we've got these fundamental studies. Why? Why do these? Like, why are these cultures similar, right? So and so we the go in and logical
0: stuff. Yeah, yeah,
1: as, really absolutely. Yeah, that's like a like fun. Yeah, it is like, right. (laughs) I know. I mean, I'm an, I'm an ethicist and like, so, I mean, people often say, well, what does an ethicist do? And I kind of like, I mean, I'm a I'm a I'm a philosopher, I'm a sociologist, I'm an anthropologist, I'm a, you know, like I I'm a computer scientist. I'm I'm all of these things kind of all kind of packaged in I guess one little bundle. Um, and it's I really love just getting out and getting, you know, getting into data and getting into like talking to people and finding out their stories and and I mean I find this is sort of stuff really exciting. And um, yeah, I guess that's you know, and I but I want to make sure like that everything that I do is looking at this kind of social technological kind of crossover, right? So, I mean, another hat that I wear is I'm a vice chair of the ACM uh, committee on professional ethics. um, And I really kind of want to make sure that all the things that I do and that my, my research, like any, any of my collaborations, you know, that we, we have a very high ethical standard and we, you know, kind of abide by the ACM's Code of Ethics. Um, so, uh, but yeah, it's... it's. How, uh, how, does
0: the, how does that align with university ethics?
1: Uh, well, the so the ACM is the Association of Computing Machineries. they one of the biggest professional organisations for, um, uh, for computing. We, we're I so am a member. In. Yeah, good on you. So you would have signed the... Well, you would have agreed to abide by the Code of Ethics, which I helped to write, the re, well, the rewrite of it recently in 2018. Um And uh, yeah, basically, it's different from research ethics in that it's not so much about like consent and like kind of the minutiae of doing a piece of research. It's more about kind of an aspirational guide of how do we create um, technology and how do we create research about technology in ways that are beneficial to society. Right. And so things like centering all that we do on the human rather than, say, profit or, you know, um, I guess personal gain in some way, right, whether that's through or status. Personal or
0: prejudice, like some of our billionaire.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's a whole other episode, that one. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so things like that where we want to sort of make sure that we've got, um, like, yeah, so it's, it's about more um, understanding the uh, context in which we create technology and the fact that we have to think outside of our own very um, limited experience with you know in terms of things like the impact of that right so if we're creating technology and we're only testing it on people from our neighborhood it's probably going to have a very specific um you know it- it'll have a very sp- specific focus whereas if we make sure we diversify our uh, you know like, the people that we test it with or the people that we consult along the way in fact and we should be including people at the beginning rather than just waiting to the end right um that you know we may, we make technology we make research that has a beneficial impact uh for for these community for all, all of all communities not just the ones that we're specifically interested in but ones that could be potentially impacted further down the line right um so yeah so i guess that's kind of like and there's i mean the ACM code of ethics has got a load of uh you know Specific things like I mean we, I mean there's a whole, a whole conversation about the things that changed between uh, then and 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 the uh, the old the old version from 1992 and the new version from 2018. Not to mention the fact that security, um, computer security has changed slightly. Uh, the previous code of ethics was like lock doors to server rooms, you know, <laughs> and these days oh we're my like. God. Yeah. Yeah. You probably need to do a little bit more than that, you know. <laughs> well, when, um, I was running, when I was running my
0: first system in the nineties, you know, we didn't even consider security because there was no nobody trying to hack in.
1: No, you know, so I the mean, world I, has I,
0: changed a bit.
1: I did. I did web programming back in like ninety nine two thousand. We were running MySQL databases with, with root access with no passwords, and this was on public facing websites. Like. So I mean, that's just how it was, you know. Nobody was like this. Cross-server scripting wasn't invented like then, you know. I mean, yeah, it's a, that was a good old days. The good old days, yeah. <laughs> the wild <laughs> west of the internet back before there were regulations.
0: <laughs> well, you know, some people, some people are still building that way. Sad to say, yeah, <laughs> like, you yeah, run across. Definitely. Sad, but I think like we that. can
1: probably agree that running open MySQL databases with it's probably not the uh, the uh, most, um, you know, safe, oh, safe the, thing to do. The, <laughs>
0: number, the number of times I find an uh, an unencrypted S3 bucket on the internet is just
1: astonishing. Anyway, but... No, I'm not astonished, actually, because people don't think... People just think, oh, well, you know, I don't have... It, like, I haven't... It's not listed on Google, therefore it doesn't exist and stuff like that, right? I like, like
0: to show people Shodan. Let
1: me just Google your, your
0: company. <laughs> Let's look on Shodan. Anyway, yeah, Yeah. it's crazy, but yeah, (laughs) so ethics, good. (laughs) It has been an utter delight to finally chat with you. Thank you so much, Catherine, and uh, thanks for joining me.
1: No, thanks very much. I've had a lovely time. And that
0: is it for another episode of the Data Revolution podcast. I'm Kate Cruthers. Thank you so much for listening. Please don't forget to give the show a nice review and a like on your podcast app of choice. See you next time.